What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to GDN's Talking Comics interview. On today's show, we welcome talented writer Bea Claymore. B. Clay has been creating comics for a myriad number of publishers, including titles like Hawaiian Dick, Battle Limb, and JS8 The Liberty Files, The Whistling Skull. Recently, B. Clay, along with artist Tony Harris, have regained the rights to their Whistling Skull character and created the Whistling Skull Special Edition hardcover. Coming soon to a Zoop campaign. Now, here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome to another edition of GVN's Talking Comics Interview. I am your host, Martin, and today we welcome accomplished comic writer B. Clay Moore to the show. B. Clay has written comic books for virtually every major publisher, including Image Comics, Marvel, DC, Wildstorm, Ani Press, and Top Cow Productions. During that time, he has been co-creator of a number of critically acclaimed creator-owned books that include Hawaiian Dick with artist Scott Chandler, and battle him with artist Jeremy Hahn. But one of the books that B. Clay created, along with artist Tony Harris, was a book entitled The Further Adventures of the Whistling Skull, originally for DC's Wildstorm imprint. In 2013, however, this book was eventually adapted as a DC Elseworlds book featuring JSA characters as JSA The Liberty Files, The Whistling Skull. Now fast forward to the present, and Moore and Harris have reclaimed the rights to their creations, which is a very difficult thing to do with DC, and are re-releasing an edition, removing the JSA mentions, and adding back material, bonus material, and more in a hardcover edition entitled appropriately enough, the Whistling Skull Special Edition Hardcover. The campaign for this project is starting soon under the Zoop umbrella. So with that in mind, we're going to talk to B. Clay about his beginnings, his previous works, and the genesis and transformation for the Whistling Skull. So let's welcome B. Clay Moore to GVN's Talking Comics. Thanks for sharing a bit of your time today, B. Clay. How are we doing today? Uh, doing pretty well, thanks. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wide open day for me, so glad to communicate. Uh, all right, lovely. Okay, so as most of you uh, go, and you've done plenty, I'm sure, uh, we're going to start with a little bit of your background. Uh, so when did you take an interest in comic book writing, and maybe whose work maybe inspired you and made it seem like that was a viable avenue for you? I, I grew up, um, I moved around a lot as a kid and uh, started reading comics in one of my stops with some friends. And uh, whenever I moved after that, that's kind of what I brought with me. Um, so, uh, you, you know, while I acclimated myself to new surroundings, I always had uh, books and comics. Um, and like, uh, like a lot of creators in general, I was, uh, I, I was an artist first, um, but knew I wanted to tell my own stories. Uh, and uh, I guess as I got older and realized that I had an aptitude for writing, or at least uh, that was that was sort of the, res I got a better response to my writing. I mean, it, it's like, you know, you, you're the kid who can draw really well, but, but just being able to draw it all impresses some kids. And then all of a sudden you look and you see there are kids that are really putting effort into it. And I realized, wow, I don't think I have the discipline to be as good as some of these guys are. Um, and, uh, I had always had an act for writing. Um, so I was a journalism major in school. Um, I was actually in sales out of college. And uh, I uh, had a friend named Jay Torres, who is a comic book writer. 
Uh, he's currently writing a, like a, an all ages Batman thing, and he does a lot of all ages graphic novels uh, for Oni Press and different people. But he was just sort of starting to break in, and I was sort of unhappy in what I was doing. And he literally just said, "Well, why don't you write comics?" Which uh, I know it wasn't as simple as just jumping into writing comics, but uh, it was kind of the first time I thought, well, why not give it a real shot? Um, as is almost 20 years ago now, but, uh, um, and also to, to your question about sort of who made me think it was viable. Um, that was around the time Warren Ellis was doing really interesting things with characters that previously hadn't been very interesting. Um, James Robinson, and Tony Harris were doing Starman, which, or had maybe wrapped it up. Or I, when I was in college, Starman was the thing that kind of kept me reading comics because it was genre, but smart. And, you know, the genre was uh, just sort of the, the trappings. You know, this, this story was deeper than just a traditional superhero story. So it was really, I guess, a, a lot of British writers, um, Robinson, Alan Moore, um, the way Alan Moore could take cheesy concepts, keep what was fun about them, but also make them smart. Um, I, I guess, I guess I realized that comics could be a pretty viable medium, even genre comics. Um, I mean, I've always been a fan of the whole medium, um, you know, autobio comics, you know, funny, whatever. As a kid, I just read anything. But long story short, Jay was uh, editing an anthology at Slave Labor Graphics. I jumped on board with that, got to know a lot of people, saw how the industry worked. And um, I was fortunate that I had that kind of view of not just how the industry worked, but how creators operated. I was assembling this anthology and this was the late nineties. So, you know, I was using all kinds of different formats and files and stuff. And so it really taught me a lot uh, in a short period of time. And then uh, Jay did a book at Image and uh, that's when uh, Hawaiian Dick was the first thing that I sort of pitched on my own. Um, and pitched it to several publishers and then Image Comics almost as an afterthought because they seemed a little, it didn't seem like where I would jump in initially, but Eric Stevenson was the PR and marketing guy at the time and just responded really well to that. And within a couple of weeks, that's where I was. So from there, everything else kind of opened up. So actually you gotta, you jump ahead. I'm about ready to ask about Hawaii Dick, but uh, since we're talking about it. Okay, so like I said, you pitched your idea to Image. How long did you have that book in mind or, or the story in mind before you actually pitched it to them? And did you uh, have any apprehension that, that they wouldn't accept it? Well, I didn't think they would, I didn't think for a minute they would accept it. <laughs> I, uh, the, Stephen Griffin was the, the, the artist, the co-creator. I had, what I literally did was um, just, threw a bunch of fun pop culture tropes together, the things that I enjoyed, um, you know, the tiki culture, um, noir, uh, the 50s aesthetic. Um, I was a big fan of 70s detective shows. And even though this is set in the 50s, it kind of has that vibe, some supernatural elements. Uh, it, was, it was literally just kind of, well, if I'm going to do something, I might as well throw this cocktail together. And if I enjoy it, maybe someone else will. And uh, original. It's funny. It was original. I I resisted calling it Hawaiian Dick initially, um, but uh, there's a Canadian artist named Jay Bone, who Jason Bone, who at the time was assisting Darwin Cook, and uh, I had talked to him initially about doing the book together, and he kept calling it Hawaiian Dick. Um, 
And I was like, Oh, I don't know. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, it fits the title, but you know, first shot out of the gate, I was just worried about how people would perceive that. But, it, but in the end it was, it was genius marketing. I mean, it's a, it's a title that to this day, if people haven't heard of it and they see it, you know, they, they want to know what, it, you know, what, what the reference is, but um, so I don't know. And I, uh, I was pretty confident that somebody would do it if I had the right artist and uh, Stephen Griffin and I connected online and uh, I didn't think he was right for the book initially and talked about doing something else, but he kept pushing to do it. And um, what's funny is, for the first two Hawaiian Dick miniseries, Steven ended up with three separate Eisner nominations for best colorist. But initially I thought we were going to do the book in black and white. And so the preview pages were black and white. Cause I was looking at slave labor, Oni press, uh, some of the smaller publishers, um, black and white, but I had asked him to do some color sort of Sunday style strips just as, uh, you know, just to kind of help sell the concept. So when I sent it, when I handed it actually to image, uh, at a convention, which Jim Valentino was the publisher, and he explicitly made it clear he hated that, that people handing him stuff because he would lose it. And later when I went to work for Image full-time, I saw that happen more than once. I mean, people, you know, you would tell people, don't hand us physical stuff. They would hand it and they would, it would get piled away somewhere. Um, but Jim kind of rolled his eyes and took it, and I think he handed it to Eric. And I'd come back around a little later and uh, introduce myself and Eric immediately had said he had read it and really liked the way it looked. And uh, it was maybe a week, two weeks later that I got an email. Um, and, and, and what was funny is he, he had said, you can do it however you want to, but we really like the color samples. Would you want to do it in color? And so, and, and it was first, it was the first book I did. Like we only did three issues. Uh, if I could go back and do it again, we'd do more, but we, we didn't understand the market. We thought, well, they're more likely to do a short, you know, give us a, a short series and a longer series, which right. that's not, you know, then we had the problem that when we did a trade, we only had three issues worth. Uh, so the trade, we ended up filling with about 50 pages of extra material. So the trade actually became a really <laughs> cool thing on its own. But anyway, it was all, you know, it was, it was a really great sort of first shot out of the gate to help me understand a lot about the industry. And, okay. uh, and around the time we did that second series, I actually spent a year as Images PR and Marketing Coordinator, which also greatly informed my understanding of comics. So, okay, so, you know, during your career, you've, uh, you know, you've seen some of your projects, you know, suffer from publishing delays, which is pretty much part of the course for most creators. But uh, when you started out, did anyone warn you that that would be a possibility? I mean, because when you're first starting out, you just want to get your work out there to the public. But you don't you don't want it being not getting put out because of somebody else's problem. It, it's it, it's it was a problem. It was a problem consistently. It's been a problem with Hawaiian Dick every step of the way, no matter what. It, I, which I, even like at this point in time, it's been a long time since I've had anything that that didn't come out. I mean, technically, the last Hawaiian Dick series from Image came out on time but we worked on it for five years, Aloha Hawaiian Dick. And we had actually solicited, so the third series, the third mini series, which is called Screaming Black Thunder now, um, which is based on like, a, like an aerial group of sort of Black Hawk type fighters are in, this, in the story. But that was intended to be like an ongoing Hawaiian Dick series. So we actually solicited the next issue after that story arc. And it just, with a, it, 
different artists and it just, everything just collapsed completely. So about five years later, uh, another artist, J Jacob White came on board and we were like, we're not, we're not going, you know, we're not even going to announce this until, uh, you know, we, we, I thought a year, two years, but it was a long process. So that last series, which was, I don't know, within the last six or seven years, I don't know, five, I guess four or five years, um, uh, those all came out on time. But again, every, so here's honestly what happened. And, and, and aspiring creators or young creators listening to this should, should keep that in mind. Image as a publisher is way more cognizant of that now. You know, they really make an effort to make sure things aren't late because they had a reputation years ago for being late. So now if one out of 30 books is late, there are retailers or whomever who will just zero in on that and think that's the way it always is, right? So the problem we had was that we had originally planned on releasing the first issue in the month of January, but then Image was doing the superhero launch which included like Robert Kirkman's Invincible and uh, Val Jim did a new Shadowhawk. Uh, and so they asked us to bump it up a month, which we should not have done. You know, we should have said, well, how about if we delay it, you know, further down the line? Um, so we were already kind of behind the eight ball by the second issue, which came out on time. The third issue of that first series was then delayed, which set a precedent that I'm still struggling with uh, no matter what I do. Uh, then the second series, was running smoothly and, and the artist, Stephen Griffin had some issues, he, he's in Australia. And there was a giant gap between, I think the second and third issue. Um, it's, so the second issue was actually drawn by Nick Darrington who has recently kind of made a name for himself doing DC work. Uh, he's been around forever, but he's really solidified as himself on the landscape. Well, he did the second issue and then he ran into issues and couldn't do anything. So. Then Steven came back and did the third issue. But it's funny because if you look at the second issue and the third issue, the cover design is completely different. Like Steven redesigned the whole thing, which I was like, well, it doesn't even look like the same series, but you know, anyway. So yeah, um, that's more answer than you're asking for. But that, that book was just always set, set by delays. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally, you know, give you a, I've got a book that I'm working on with uh, Mac Chater, uh, artist that uh, was approved a couple months ago. And the publisher, um, we, we set the end of next summer as the release date. Um, and that's for an initial four issues, just because we, they knew and we knew that we wanted to make sure, you know, first of all, we had build up and second of all, we got it out on time and we had time to work on other things as well. Um, the way comics is sometimes until something is released or solicited, you don't know if it's going to be even, you know, worth the effort you've put into it. So it's nice to be able to, on the one hand, it's nice to know you've got something coming out a year from now because, you know, you know, you'll still be on the radar, but then you can kind of fill the gaps in until then. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a process. It's not, um, but no, nobody warned us of that. It was only, uh, tr you know, through experience that, uh, um, you know, and, and the problem is when it's like a two-man operation, if, if something ha happens to to the artist or the writer, uh, health concerns or whatever, it's there's almost no way to bring somebody in. Um, I did a, I actually did a book at Aftershock called Miles to Go, and the, the books came out on time, but we had to delay the solicitation because uh, the artist had some serious family issues, that no fault of his own, that just absolutely 
derailed him. Um, you know, so even though you're working ahead, what, you know, unless it's all in the can, which is unusual. Um, yeah, that, that's always a risk. So. And so I imagine that was quite the thing during the whole COVID thing, because right. There's all kinds of different right. things that can, that could derail you there. Okay. Now speaking of the different, the different artists you've worked with and you've worked with uh, numerous ones, some more than once, uh, uh, like Jeremy, Jeremy Hall, for example. So what, what kind of rapport do you work best with when you, with your artists, do you, uh, work in close collaboration with them or do you just give them a script and say, here, you just, you do you or uh, what, what, what works best for you? Well, since I kind of came into comics doing creator owned comics and uh, so Stephen Griffin, I had Hawaiian Dick conceptualized and sort of plotted. Um, but like I said, I'd originally thought Jay Bone might draw it and Jay has a real sort of clean animated style, which is not what Stephen's style was. So when Stephen came on board, I made it very clear and I always, I may have a concept or an idea in place, but if I'm doing a creator owned book, I always want to have the option to this point, I, I pretty much always want to have the option of bringing on somebody that I know I can collaborate with and communicate with and, and invite them to bring whatever they bring to the table so that it becomes, you know, a hybrid of the, of, even if it was originally my idea, I want it to become, you know, our idea if we're working on it together. It's a little harder when you're doing, you know, work for hire like DC or Marvel books or something. Sometimes you don't know the artist. You don't, sometimes you've written a complete script and only when it's published do you realize you weren't playing to the artist's strengths because you didn't know who was going to draw it or what have you. Um, so, and The Whistling Skull is a good example. That was a DC book, but Tony and I, Tony Harris and I created it together. Uh, and Tony had the original concept. Um, and then when I came on board, I kind of shaped it, you know, introduced new characters. And we, we found out that uh, if I have one skill as a collaborator, I think as long as I'm working with somebody whom I respect and is open about their own ideas, I think I'm pretty good at me meshing my ideas with their sensibilities so that it doesn't ever seem like it's clashing, right? So pretty early I clued into Tony's, he's got this sort of crazy, um, just throw it at the wall sort of creativity and uh, comes up with these wild sort of uh, unencumbered ideas that are just a lot of fun to sort of incorporate and uh and every now and then he'd throw a, like a complete curveball in and rather than you know get uptight and you know say that it doesn't fit my rigid idea it, i've always thought it's kind of kind of a fun challenge to figure out then how we incorporate that to keep the rules of the universe um working together and you know what what we can do with it and with the whistling skull because that was a project we worked on it was approved by DC slash Wildstorm in 2007 and debuted at the very tail end of 2012. So it went through complete rewrites. We added the uh, DC Elseworlds elements to our creator own book. Um, there was a lot of moving stuff around and, you know, trying to figure out how to fit it all together. And, um, and in the end, I was pretty happy with how that worked out. Um, but no, yeah, I would, I would always choose to work. I mean, a lot of time I, I'll do new projects generally with people I've known for a long time in the industry. I mentioned miles to go, which was an aftershot book. I've known Steven Molnar for 15 years and uh, he had approached me out of the blue and said, Hey, would you want to develop something together, you know, to, to, to pitch out? And, and, and the first thing I did was ask him what kind of story he wanted to tell, you know? Um, and then 
you know, I took some existing kind of loose ideas I had and put them together. And uh, like you mentioned, Jeremy, I've known Jeremy for 20 years now. And we, uh, it's only recently I realized we really haven't done much together creatively for a while. I think the last thing we did was the Bad Karma anthology that we kickstarted. Um, but we're in near constant contact just as friends and, and sounding boards. And we did a book over 10 years ago at Oni Press called The Leading Man that we have the rights to. And we're always talking to, you know, people are always talking about, you know, adapting that to this medium or that medium. So, you know, if things go well, as they did with Jeremy and I with Battle Him and Image and The Leading Man and uh, some other things, you kind of end up tied to the hip with a collaborator because, you, you know, you, you both own and claim the property. Okay, so so speaking of that, as I said, now you've over the years you've had a number of uh, projects that uh, have been optioned for television or film that just again, as many creators have found out, sometimes things haven't quite uh, come together as they should. Has that uh, in those situations has that been a disappointment for you, or did again you kind of get forewarned going in of what you were looking at? I mean, my general philosophy in everything is to be pragmatic about things, so. I've never, you know, I've never cashed a check before it was written. You know what I mean? So the way I always look at it is whatever you've got in your hand is all you're going to count on. Hope for the best. Um, there have been disappointments. Generally, the, the disappoint, disappointments come when things seem lined up. Uh, I mean, you never expect things to fly. But like, for instance, with Hawaiian Dick, which was originally optioned by New Line Cinema uh, and then re-optioned for film, you know, you, first project out of the gate, you're excited to get the attention. You're excited for the, the, the money that it brings in just as an option. Obviously, you, you learn very early that everybody's going to blow smoke at you until they don't have any control over the property, you know. Um, and and I, I think sometimes when you're talking to people out there, they think you're cynical because you're not buying into everything. But it's just about being more realistic, you know. I mean, don't. I mean, I listen, I, I actually get kind of a kick out of their, it's BS, you know, I mean, they, they blow all the smoke and, it, and sometimes it's, it's almost comical, you know, I mean, it depends on who you're dealing with, but, uh, you know, you'll have meetings and I remember having a meeting in San Diego that was really difficult for me to get to on time. And it was on top of a building, you know, in this, you know, fancy setting. And I thought all, all this guy was thinking about was how he was going to impress me with this the setting that was a nightmare for me to get to at eight o'clock in the morning or whatever. So by the time I got there, I was like, yeah, it's great. I'm, you know, I'm, but, uh, so anyway, I kind of enjoy that part of the thing, but, um, but you know, you also, if things don't work out, it's, I talked about Hawaiian Dick. It opened a lot of doors, got to meet a lot of people um, because I've had several things that have almost always been optioned by uh, major studios, you know, Warner brothers, NBC, uh, there's always that perception. It's good when they think you might be able to make them money. Um, they're more likely to kind of always, you know, have your name handy, so to speak. Um, but, you know, like I did a thing called Billy Smoke at Oni, Oni Press. I hadn't even written that book when they told me if we could do an outline, Warner Brothers might option it. And I said, there's no, that's not going to happen. I mean, the reason we had another book is because there wasn't, we didn't, couldn't afford the time. We weren't going to make much money on it. So I literally spent a weekend, wrote a two-page outline, and the next they called me the next, you know, the next Monday and said, "Oh, Warner Brothers just optioned it uh, for a feature film starring Matthew Fox when he was on Lost." Uh, 
you know, and then Eric Kim was the artist that had worked it up with me. And he said, do we have to do the book now? And I said, yeah, I mean, we, we should, well, we did do the book, but it was never published by Oni. It was, <laughs> you know, I ended up at San Diego comic-con two weeks later, signing posters for a non-existing book with Matthew Fox next to me. And there's a line around the corner of lost fans who don't have any idea what this is or who I am, you know, <laughs> he kept going, this is the guy, you know, and I'm like, no, but so in retrospect, it didn't happen, but we made some money, had, you know, stories to tell, got, you know what I mean? It's the experience is fun. Um, and, you know, when things don't happen, you still own, you know, if you still own the work, you never know down the road when something might happen. Like with Hawaiian Dick, the most disappointing thing for me was we put together a television pitch a couple years ago with amazing talent, like showrunners and writers. And the pitch they put together was the first time anybody had really nailed it. Like anything they added was stuff I wish I had thought of. And uh, everybody was sure it was, I mean, there's, it still blows my mind that it didn't happen, you know, um, especially with the track record of all involved. But it's a crapshoot. You just never know what's going to, you know, what they're looking for, what's going to hit right, what's going to click, um, you know. And so that didn't work out, but you never know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So from that experience, so if, again, for, the, for a newcomer to uh, someone tells them that they're going to want to option something that he's done, what advice would you give them? Well, I would, again, my, I think my experiences are a little different because I remember when Hawaiian Dick was option, I was talking to a couple other creators and I talked to another image creator who had sold the rights to his book to somebody for like $1,500 cold. And his attitude was, well, that's all you're ever going to make is about $1,500 and nothing's going to happen with it. Well, then I, down the road, I thought, well, you unless you really need that $1,500, that's, if it's not, if it's not something that's going to set it up with a potential to be something, you know, um, special, then I wouldn't just jump on board it, way too many creators jump, like producers will scout around and try to grab ideas with nothing. And then they'll, they'll make announcements, you know, oh, we're right. pitching a TV show. It's basically what these announcements are. There's no money involved. There's no guarantee of production. There's not even an option involved. Um, people will just give things to people. Um, and, and that's what I would, would, if somebody's interested in it, there's the odds are pretty good. Maybe somebody else would be interested right. in it. And, you know, it's just in this industry, creators are taken advantage of uh, in so many ways. And a lot of that is because so many I think, people in the industry are sort of, you know, they're introverted, you know, they're working on their stuff and they don't really want to deal with all that stuff. Uh, having come out of a sales background and, 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 you know, enjoying the engaging process. Um, I've always asked questions and, and kind of been annoying. I know for, you know, at times, I mean, I've got a producer I've dealt with for years who just can't stand hearing from me because I'm always like, what's going on? What's up? What's going on with this? And he'll call me and say, you're going to think this is because you've been poking at me, but it's not, you know, and, um, but, but by the same token, as soon as there was interest in Hawaiian Dick, I also reached out to Steve Niles because 30 Days of Night had just been purchased. Like they didn't, that wasn't even an option. That was like a really rare, you know, and uh, so I asked him for some advice and I thought, well, if I'm going to ask somebody for advice, it's better to ask the guy who, you know, who kind of hit the top of the mountain than the guy who's unhappy with the deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah, just don't sell yourself short and, and make sure that when when you're choosing a publisher, there are so many publishers out there now that are, that are creator owned publishers where 
there's always a balance, right? So some people will pay you nothing, but you keep all the rights and you'll make the money on the back end if your book sells, say, right? Some people will pay you a rate. They want half of your rights. They want all of your rights. You, again, I think a lot of people are just like first deal they hear, they'll, you know, they'll jump right. on board. Sometimes it doesn't work out to their benefit. Nobody reads the book and they don't have the rights anymore, you know? Um, I'm luckily in a position now where I, I've been around long enough and know enough people and have dealt with enough publishers that at the very least, I can consider what options publishers have before I approach them with an idea, whether they pick it up or not. So, um, and that's one reason I've worked, you know, I've done, I've probably done fewer books for more publishers than anybody, you know, I mean, there's nobody I haven't done something <laughs> for along the way and there are pros and cons with everybody. So you were talking about rights and you were able to secure your right back to Adventures of the Whistling Skull. Uh, and history tells us, of course, that getting either of the big two to release creators work from under their umbrella is usually problematic at best. Uh, so uh, how did that whole thing come about? Well, DC, and I can't speak, uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a while since I've even talked to DC about anything that would be creator-owned or shared rights. But uh, this was about, well as I said, 2007 originally, but then 2010, we had to restructure the contracts or 2012, but um, they have DC slash Warner brothers has language in their contracts that allow for reversion of rights. If certain things are met. And that's something you should actually, anytime you're doing something you've created and you're granting a publisher the right to shop it, 50% of the revenue from the media rights or whatever, you should always, make sure you're very clear on if the material reverts back to you or if the rights revert back to you. Sometimes you'll get the material, but they'll hang on to the rights. Uh, sometimes certain conditions have to be met before, you know, you can get everything back. Well, in the case of the Whistling Skull, we knew that there were publishing um, parameters, you know, in terms of like how long something had been out, of, it had been out of print or what have you, we could request the rights back. Tony, um, and frankly, Tony, Tony's attorney um, kind of went through the contract with a fine tooth comb early on. And we had hoped to do more of the book at DC, but when we added the DC Elseworlds elements, we really needed somebody to, to really, you know, go over the contract because obviously we're never going to own the DC elements. So, you know, how can we extract our work um, without, you know, and, and, you know, get the rights and, and leave the DC stuff behind. That was where it got a little complicated, but, but from the beginning, we've been aware of what it would take for us to get the rights back. And um, when those conditions were met, uh, Tony and I talked about it and, and, uh, and DC was, uh, they were, I mean, they, they, the contract was what it was. They understood the, the deal. And, um, you know, once everything was set, they were, you know, they made it clear, just, you can't use the, stuff we own, uh, the rest of it's yours. And, um, and uh, you know, gave, we've got the files and everything back. So uh, it, it, was, it was not a real painful process, even though a lot of people, it, it happens more often than you think. You'll see that like Image or somebody will occasionally publish something that was a Vertigo or a Wildstorm creator-owned book at one time. And if DC has, or Warner Brothers has never exploited that material into other media, then there's no real reason for them to hold on to it, you know. I mean, so, um, so it, yeah, it wasn't such a difficult process. We just wanted to make sure it got done. It did take a little while for, to get their attention, you know. You're, hey guys, but 
Okay. Okay. So, so you're bringing your, uh, the Whistling Skull book through the, the good folks at Zoop uh, for your crowdfunding effort. Uh, so what was it about their approach that made you feel like this was the right avenue for you as far as crowdfunding goes? Well, we were never going to crowdfund this project because Tony and I have had issues with um, campaigns of our own that, uh, that have been delayed for things really beyond our control. Um, I was not going to take on the burden of another crowdfunding campaign, not just until I had everything else buttoned up, but just because, uh, you know, we had done the Jeremy Hahn and Alex Grecian and Seth Peck and I had done this bad karma, like 200 page anthology and herded all the cats and got it done and kickstarted it and it worked out. Um, but that's a whole lot of work and hurting of creators and, you know, handling everything. And if, if one, if one thing doesn't work out, then everything else is set off. So we knew we were going to do the book in some form somewhere. Um, and because we had all the rights, we had the freedom to, to do anything with it, like it was an original creation. But I think Tony had been talking to Zoop, or Zoop had approached him maybe about something else. And the way Zoop works is um, they they do all the heavy lifting. You know, they, uh, you know, I mean, we basically were aiding their campaign to be, you know, more than, more than their, you know, aiding our, our campaign. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's so easy to deal with them because they're, I mean, the work they're putting into it is, is more than the work we are at this point, because the books, you know, all we've had to do was sort of tweak some of the existing artwork and, and rewrite some of it. Uh, Zoop, and we agreed with this completely, made it clear early on, you know, we're, we're going to, we're not going to launch the campaign until everything's in hand. Um, so there's no debate or question about whether the book comes out on time. And since, since it was all done years ago, except for these tweaks we've already made, it was pretty easy. Um, and, you know, and along the way, uh, they also, it's like, they handle everything except for the production of the material. I mean, they'll, they'll handle the printing and the, and the distribution and everything, but, um, the, the material is still our, you know, it's up to us. There's no no outside influence. Um, so one of the things that happened was um, we talked to Dave McCaig who had colored it originally at DC and who, who, um, who I've worked with coincidentally on other things and who I know well enough that I could, you know, talk to him about, uh, you know, we want to make sure he's credited for it and everything and, you know, and, and has copies or whatever. And then he, he immediately said, well, I'd like to, tweak the color a little bit because I think it printed a little darker than we wanted it to. So Dave took, you know, volunteered to take all the original files, tweak the color. So it, it worked better for him. And, and, you know, he did that and got it back to us. Um, so that's the other thing is it's been, it's been easy and nice to just do little things that just kind of maybe most readers wouldn't even notice, but for us, it, it, it gives us a chance to present it as we really, uh, would have always wanted it to be presented. Not that not that there was anything wrong with the way DC did it, but you know, second time around, you can fiddle with the controls. So, so is this more in line with the version that you had planned before? You know, you you in, included the JSA characters involved. It, yeah, it would be. <laughs> it's fortunate in, in one respect in that we had already I had already written all six issues prior to adding the Elseworlds JSA characters. Um, so I had to rewrite the series, but because it was already written, we didn't really immerse that the JSA the Elseworlds characters into the story as much as use them as framing devices. 
and then to kind of help build the world. Um, so, and the truth is the characters we used were already tweaked versions of DC characters because Tony Harris and, and uh, was it Dan Jolly, whoever he had created the original Liberty Files book with, they had already kind of tweaked the DC characters. So we've just kind of, you know, taking them in a new direction, um, you know, because the concept of the, the larger world is something we want to hold on to. But the core of the book was always about this, the Whistling Skull, who's like a generational pulp noir hero. And we're focused on one, uh, one Whistling Skull's journey in this story, so to speak, even though he's part of a lineage, um, which informs his current, well, current as of the 40s, um, <laughs> identity um so so yeah it didn't um yeah i mean we, I, I guess what i'm trying to say is that the published version at, at dc was not that far from what we had always wanted it to be um we just enriched it with the incorporation of the the dc elements so uh so uh, fans go to your site to check out your campaign what else can they uh find there besides, besides of course the book well the 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 main thing we wanted to do is, is the book. So we've got the book. The book has some, uh, some bonus, some, some, Tony does a whole lot of pre-production and sketches and drawings. And just, just if you say, Hey, what if we had a, um, you know, a, a sort of a graphic frame for this page within an hour, he's like, boom, got this, you know, so um, it's, it's prettied up quite a bit. Uh, he, he wanted to do this sort of larger hardcover, you know, make it really a special, a book. That's the main thing. We want to have this thing out there and uh, give people a chance to read it, but also just uh, just to see our work presented, you know, in, in as nice a format as we could. Um, so there's that extra material. And then Tony is doing uh, like remarks, like sketches, uh, quick sketches in some of the books. We're signing copies. Um, he's he's also I think he's got some uh, some developmental uh some physical stuff that we put together back in the day uh, that we'll be offering people a chance to, to uh, include um, like one of the, he's on top of an artist. Um, he's, he's a, he's a maker. He, I don't know where he finds the time to do it, but he makes things. So one of the things he's got, and this is not something he's willing to sell, but I'll just, he's got the whistling skull costume, a physical, like an actual costume. I mean, it's crazy. It's like, perfect i mean you know it's because it's a crazy character so he built the character um I, I when i was going through the original material that we used when we built the book i realized like there's a watch in one scene it's called the worm watch and it's sort of a time jumping watch well he built a version of that physically you know and he sent me pictures. i don't know I, I don't that know. man's got a lot of free time <laughs> well he doesn't but i mean when he really when he when he when he put sets his mind to it i mean he he He's been doing amazing commissions like this lately. Um, so he's in a real creative groove right now, but he's, uh, I think I posted on Twitter, uh, one of the little black and white sketch he did of the Whistling Skull that uh, is super cool. I mean, stuff like that we'll be offering to people. Um, I don't, you know, uh, just little odds and ends like that. I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, again, because we wanted to make sure we had everything in hand and could just get the campaign done, get the book done on time and out the door. Um, we're not uh, we're not going crazy with it, but um, Tony's putting a lot of extra effort into you know little things like that for people. So, 
Because uh, you had me at signed copies. I'm I'm big about the signed copies. Yeah. So uh, uh, yeah. that's all you had to do to get my interest. In. Yeah. You're, uh, offering, you're offering signed copies with the yeah. With both yeah of so, all right. Well, well, I say well, that's all I got for you. And I want to thank you so much for your uh, time, B. Clint. Uh, but before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to share any other projects that you might have ongoing, if, the ones that you can. And uh, where can fans follow you on social media and the web? Just uh, just about any. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it, just B. Clay Moore, one word. I, that's, that's the tag I use for everything. Um, makes it pretty easy. Um, I'm, I, Twitter is Twitter's jumping around a little bit right now, but I try yeah. to, I, I try to, I've tried to focus more on creative things. And uh, um, if I post something on Instagram or Twitter or uh, Instagram or Tumblr, for instance, which, Maybe more people will start using, but I uh, uh, I like throwing stuff up there because it gives me more more space. But um, I usually link it back to my Twitter account, um, and uh, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, and and I've started posting more sort of public posts about just projects and what have you. Um, most recently, I, I mentioned Miles to Go. You could probably still find copies of the trade paperback from AfterShock in shops. I did a book with Shane White called Endless Summer, which was a graphic novel summer uh, is but anyway endless summer is a 60s uh pop culture kind of uh mishmash that shane and i did it's self-contained from insight comics and then as i mentioned mac chater and i are doing uh a horror comic next year um that i guess hasn't been announced technically although everything's been signed and we're working on it and then we're also doing a sort of uh midnight detective kind of thing together um so if you you know, Google Mac Chater, he's an amazing British artist. We, we've really struck up a pretty good collaboration. Um, so uh, I guess those are what I'm working on right now um, once we get the Whistling Skull out of the way. And then I'm finishing up uh, all the overdue Hawaiian Dick stuff. And then um, once we get that done, I would like to, down the road, collect all the existing Hawaiian Dick stuff in a couple books and then um, possibly do a new series sort of time shifted a little bit and do something new, but uh, that's all down the road once once the outstanding ducks are in a row. Excellent. Okay. Well, we appreciate it. Like I said, I encourage anyone to uh, uh, go to Zoop and check out the Whistling Skull Special Edition hardcover. Uh, and uh, say, like I said, I'm going to see about getting my another sign thing for me. Uh, so I appreciate it, Clay, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, talk to you again real soon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Martin. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to GVN's Talking Comics. Please come back again. Talking Comics is a production of Geek Vibes Nation.